Hi, everybody. This is Gat Saad. Yesterday was the last uh, lecture of the semester, another semester in the books. And as I've done in the past, I'd like to go over the, the topics of my students' projects. Uh, this semester, I taught a MBA course, a seminar in consumer behavior, and an undergraduate course, Understanding Our Consuming Instinct. Uh, and the students uh, have to do a project where they identify a research question, they uh, you know, conduct a literature review, they propose some hypotheses, they develop a data collection uh, procedure, whether it be experiments or surveys or content analysis or observational studies, where they collect the necessary data, they analyze the data, they arrive at some conclusions and so on. So basically an entire research project. Uh, and so the, the, the last lecture, they have to present their final project. And so I'll just go over the main topics that were covered in, in both classes. I'll start with the undergraduate. I won't go into all the details. The details are actually themselves very interesting, but it just gives you a sense of, uh, you know, the types of projects that students end up covering in my consumer behavior course. As I always explain to students, uh, everything is consumer behavior. Everything is marketing. Uh, I don't define consumer behavior as, you know, consuming Coca-Cola and Starbucks, but friendships are consumatory in nature. Marriages are, we consume religion, we consume popular culture. So I consume, therefore I am, as I explain in this book, 2007. So here we go. This is the uh, main projects uh, for each of the two courses. So I'll begin with the undergraduate courses. So here's a project where students looked at how malevolent traits, specifically, you know, dark triad traits, how depending on what how I score on those traits will affect the type of advertising uh, appeals that are either effective or not. So for example, if I use a social proofing appeal, you know, eight, six billion people have used this product, shouldn't you? That's called the social proofing appeal. So will different types of advertising appeals be more or less effective as a function of how I score on malevolent traits? And there are some interesting theories as to why that might be the case. So again, look at how exciting. This, this is undergraduates. Next one, uh, family dynamics uh, and then gender roles and how work is allocated in the house. So let me explain what I mean by that. So here what they wanted to look at is does the fact that, say, a woman has in a marriage higher status than a man or she makes more money than the man, does that then cause the man in, in, a, in, a, in a desire to compensate for the lower salary, if you'd like, or lower status, does that cause the man to engage in greater contribution to the house chores? And so here it's a, uh, uh, it's a study of uh, you know, family dynamics and how various uh, responsibilities in the house are delegated to each of the two uh, parties. Now, of course, it's relevant to consumer behavior in several ways, one of which is that family decision-making is a really important part of decision-making. So when you're thinking about certain types of product categories, uh, men overwhelmingly make those decisions for the family others it's mainly women others it's they're done independently of one another others are done uh, syncretically together 
And so uh, understanding family dynamics and how these might have downstream effects in consumer behavior is certainly important and interesting. So this is what this group of students did. Let's go to the next one. All right, here we go. Sorry. Uh, cigarette warning labels uh, and sex differences in how the two sexes will respond to uh, different warning labels. So they either created a warning label that was related to fertility, you know, you this will cause impotence, let's say, or one that uh, is related to physical aesthetic appeals. This will worsen your teeth or your your uh, your skin or so on, and or it's a cancer, uh, you know, it's a cancer appeal. This will increase your chances of getting uh, lung cancer. Uh, and the idea was, of course, that different types of appeals will either have no sex differences or will be more effective on men or women uh, for clear evolutionary reasons. So in this case, you're looking at the efficacy of, you know, public service announcements, in this case, cigarette warning labels uh, as a function of which sex you are. The next one uh, looked at mate search. So they created this uh, kind of similar to a swipe right, swipe left, uh, and they wanted to study mate search behavior uh, as a function of one's score on specific personality traits. As you might imagine, there are all sorts of personality variables that can affect the extent to which we will engage in search. So for example, if I score depending on how I score on the maximizing versus satisficing scale. Uh, satisficing means it's good enough, right? So some of us are satisficers, others are maximizers. And actually, this is something that I studied in a 2009 paper that I published with uh, two of my former graduate students in a journal of behavioral decision-making. And I won't get into the, the, the various personality traits that they looked at, which themselves are quite interesting. But the idea is that depending on these individual differences, these differences in personality traits, the extent to which we will engage in mate search, in this case, kind of mimicking the Tinder swipe right, swipe left, uh, is going to have an effect on that. So that's what these guys looked at. Now, again, look, these are all undergraduate projects. And then finally, these guys looked at masculinity traits and uh, luxury consumption. So the idea is, does how an individual score on various masculinity traits, their height, their voice quality, uh, you know, various traits, does that affect the likelihood, the proclivity to engage in luxury consumption? And so here you could think of one of several possible uh, theoretical frameworks. You could argue the more masculine I am, the more likely I am to be someone who wishes to engage in sexual signaling, or you can view it as a compensatory process, right? You could argue, uh, you know, it's the old, if he's driving a Porsche, he's trying to compensate for something. And so these guys looked at that. Okay, so that covers the five projects in my undergraduate class. Uh, these guys defended, uh, or not defended, uh, the presented last week. And then I had three groups in my MBA class. Uh, they, they presented yesterday. So let me go through their projects. Uh, so this first project, also dealing with some family dynamics issue, this, this is the MBA class, uh, looked at, uh, so parents engage in various amount of parental investment, right? So they, they looked at four types of extracurricular activities that 
parents will invest in their children. So the four were how much tutoring services they provide, uh, sports activities, art, and community activities. So they came up with a metric for, uh, you know, parental investment, the extent of parental investment. And then the idea was to study whether there are certain parental characteristics that predict how much parents invest in their children. So one of the traits actually one of the characteristics they looked at is birth order. So here what they're doing basically the y variable the, the the variable to be predicted is extent of parental investment and then as a function of a whole bunch of predictive variables linked to the characteristics of the parents. So that's one project of my MBA class. This one is another really great one. This is a project that looked at does war trauma affect is there an effect on downstream consumer variables? So, for example, consumer-related variables, food hoarding, uh, the the type of foods that you hoard or eat, you know, high-calorie foods and so on. So the idea is that because of war trauma, does that alter the way by which you interact with certain survival-related consumatory items? And so they looked at a control group people who didn't suffer from war. They looked at a group that were first-generation war survivors and then or second-generation. And then they, they looked at all sorts of, uh, you know, they did all sorts of analyses to look at that. Now, again, look at this. I mean, I mean, 13 weeks ago, we start the semester, all these students have no clue about any of this stuff. They, they, they don't necessarily know how to conduct research. They have no clue about all these topics. And in 13 very, very intensive weeks, which, by the way, require a tremendous amount of supervision on my part, because, you know, I, I provide, if I may say, way more, uh, you know, uh, mentoring than I'm required to, because I truly believe that these types of projects are so important pedagogically. It really teaches students how to think. And then finally, the last project, very timely given the pandemic that we are likely to be in for the next 489 years because there's a new variant there's a new variant uh this is a project looking at personality predictors of vaccine hesitancy i mean it can't get more timely than this so the idea is of course that some some people are not willing to take the vaccine or are hesitant to take the vaccine others say let's do it and so they looked at four personality traits, if I remember correctly, for example, conspiratorial thinking. Uh, and they wanted to see whether how you score on these personality traits affect um, you know, the likelihood of you being vaccine hesitant or not. So look at all of these projects, very, very different, completely different, fully rigorous scientifically, statistical analyses, inferential stats, the scientific method using all sorts of, you know, wonderful data collection tools. Not everybody, you know, executed their projects perfectly. But again, you know, if you look at when they first come into class, I mean, they really just have no clue how to go through this. And 13 weeks later, they're speaking a language that, you know, they, they'd never known before. They're doing analyses that they couldn't have imagined doing and so on. So it's really quite rewarding to see their progress in such a short time and again it in a sense it demonstrates uh, what a privilege it is to be a professor because 
you really are seeing people developing these critical thinking skills founded in the scientific method so that the, so that that epistemological tool is weaponized against all sorts of interesting problems that's what's beautiful about science and again this shows you i mean i get all sorts of you know imbeciles on, on you know on social media who say oh you know but you know consumer psychology how is that scientific evolutionary psychology how is that scientific i mean only a full-blown imbecile could say something like this we they are completely applying the scientific method to all sorts of fascinating important societal economical business psychological epidemiological problems and it's all done in a rigorous scientific way and they're learning this uh, as early as their undergraduate if not in their mbas their mscs and their phds by the way i just had a student defend his msc thesis today who's working with me and uh, the thesis that we're the project that we're working on together is looking at how uh, paras parasite stress level as you might imagine it's been many many years that i've been uh you know navigating in the world of parasites as per authoring the parasitic mind in this case it was an empirical study looking at how paras uh, parasite stress levels can have an effect on consumer-related phenomena, specifically conspicuous consumption and neophobia. Neophobia is fear of, of the, the, the novel, the new. And so if you are exposed to higher parasitic uh, density, uh, parasite stress levels, uh, does that alter uh, your behavior along certain consumatory uh, metrics? Uh, great, great study. Some of the results were uh, disappointing, as often happens in science. I always, not always, but I'm often very suspicious when I see scientific papers where someone runs seven studies and it's all just perfect. And so I've developed a, an, uh, maybe I've developed, maybe I've always had it, this uncanny ability to detect bullshit. Uh, science is not nearly as neat and clean as some of the papers presume it to be. If you see seven studies, all of which are perfectly clean, you might want to have that antenna go up. So not all of the data uh, came out as we had hoped, but that's part of the beauty of science. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but I think it is certainly exciting enough and novel enough that we should be able to hopefully publish it in a, in a good journal. And uh, uh Tip of the hat to the committee members who agreed to part, uh, serve as committee members, one of whom is one of the pioneers of uh, uh, parasite uh, stress uh, theory, which uh, and his name is uh, Dr. Randy Thornhill. He's a professor. He's an evolutionary scientist at University of New Mexico many years ago in 2006, I think, as I was uh, as this book was about to come out. Uh, he and some other folks at the University of New Mexico, including Jeffrey Miller, who's a friend of mine, who's an evolutionary psychologist, Steve Gengistead, Randy Thornhill, and many other wonderful evolutionary scientists had invited me to the University of New Mexico to talk about my work at the intersection of evolutionary psychology and consumer psychology. And it had been many years since I last uh, had seen Randy. It was great to see him again. You know, it's, it's really wonderful when you uh, connect with uh, colleagues that you truly uh, respect and admire, and and Randy Thornhill is certainly one of them. Uh, he will, by the way, be on my show soon, 
we'll be discussing all sorts of fantastic stuff. Randy is, by the way, uh, uh, the gentleman who, with one of his former students, Corey Fincher, uh, published a paper uh, many years ago. I, I cite it, I think, in The Consuming Instinct. He published a paper on uh, parasite density in different cultures and how that affects how the culture scores on individualism, collectivism. Uh, an amazing paper because, again, as I actually mentioned today in the thesis defense, one of the things that makes research interesting is when you link variables that heretofore you 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 know you you didn't know were linked. And so the fact that uh, in their research, Randy and uh, Fincher were able to link the distribution of cultural traits, specifically individualism, collectivism, and link that to to parasitic density within different ecosystems that's beautiful so as you can see i've been uh, mired in the study and in the reading and in the exploration of uh, all sorts of parasites for many many years beginning with the first exposure to parasitic thinking when i first became a professor now almost 30 years ago where i was trying to introduce evolutionary biology and evolution psychology to the study of you know, consumer behavior and the behavioral sciences in general, uh, while housed in a business school. And I saw the type of resistance that I was getting. Uh, and I thought, oh, oh, I think we've got some uh, idea pathogens flowing. So uh, in a sense, it's terribly rewarding to have had the culmination of all these years fighting parasitic thinking with, with this book, because it really is the culmination of, you know, many years of seeing these idea pathogens brewing uh, on university campuses, uh, if not certainly in the social sciences. So it was so nice to today have a, a thesis where, you know, we're making further progress in demonstrating that all sorts of biological realities affect our behaviors uh, within the business realm, right? So consumers don't somehow exist outside of their biology. They are who they are because of their biology. And our interaction with pathogens including parasites, uh, are a endemic part of our evolutionary history. So there you have it, folks. This is the type of content that I am soon planning on putting behind a subscription wall. You know, after many, many years of providing all of this content for free, it's frankly becoming untenable to be, untenable to be able to spend this much time uh, without getting much remuneration. I'm sorry to be making this uh, this appeal here, but uh, it looks like soon I will probably be setting up some subscription-based uh, walls. Uh, I'll announce the details at some point soon, but this is the kind of information that you will be seeing behind the paywall. Uh, I'm not sure what the, f the, the price will be, but somewhere between five to $10 a, a month. And then I will basically say, this is what you could expect to receive for that subscription. I know many, many people in the thousands have said that they'd be willing to subscribe to such a service. I mean, I just went for a coffee with my wife. We paid $5 per coffee. It was $10. Uh, well, for $5, imagine that you would be receiving this clip that I just shared with you for $5. So a coffee or this content. And I can assure you that It'll be a lot more than this just one clip that you'll be getting for between five to ten dollars a month. Maybe it'll be about seven or eight dollars. We'll see per month. So I hope many of you will subscribe because 
if hopefully I can get to a point where I am uh, financially secure with these commitments, then who knows where that might uh, take me and what it might allow me to do, what kind of time I could free up so that I can pursue some of the big uh, projects that I'm hoping to. So there you have it, folks. Uh, uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you for your attention. Spread the message. And as always, thank you for your support. Cheers, everybody.